Hey guys, you're listening to episode 82 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking to Matt Bell, author of Trusted, Preparing Your Kids for a Lifetime of God-Honoring Money Management. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. Today, we're talking to Matt Bell, author of Trusted, Preparing Your Kids for a Lifetime of God-Honoring Money Management. In this book, Matt breaks down all the major skills kids should develop before they are ready to leave the home, as well as countless strategies and examples of how to foster those skills. In particular, Matt has a passion for cultivating a heart of generosity and a biblical relationship with money in kids from an early age. He's full of wisdom on this topic, and you don't want to miss what he has to say. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you about our finish line sprints. If you've been getting a lot out of this podcast and are looking for a way to take it to the next level, you should consider starting or joining a sprint. A sprint is a guided program for small groups meant to lead you through the overarching biblical themes related to wealth and money, while allowing you to explore the restored freedom and purpose that comes with choosing a financial finish line. The sprint guide is completely free, and it's available on our website at finishlinepledge.com slash sprint. Sprints are also completely self-led, so you don't need a trained leader or someone who's been through the program before. All you need are a couple friends to get started. Check it out and get a group together today. With that, let's get started. All right, we have Matt Bell joining us tonight. Thank you so much for being with us today, Matt. It's really a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Can you just get us started today and tell us a little bit about your background, maybe your faith background and early career? Sure. I grew up with, my mom was Catholic, my dad was Jewish, so I jokingly and lovingly say that spiritually speaking, they sort of cancel each other out. Um, <laughs> my mom's views got passed down to me much more so than my dad's. In fact, I didn't even realize he was Jewish till I was about 12. He really wasn't a practicing Jew, but my mom believed in some of the basics, you know, Jesus is the son of God. There is a life after death. So I grew up with some of the basics of the Christian faith, but nothing like a personal relationship with Christ. So it wasn't until my 20s when I got interested in spiritual matters. And that came about through what I like to call the unintentional reenactment of the Bible's parable of the prodigal son. I inherited some money when I was in my mid-20s from an uncle who passed away, $60,000, which seemed like all the money in the world to me at the time. And had good intentions with that money, but I used it to create my dream job. I thought that would be a good use of the money. I like to play golf. I like to travel. So I created a newsletter for golfers who take golf vacations. And for a while, it was really great. I got to play Pebble Beach and some other great golf courses in other parts of the world, but was not managing the money well. And I'd become so acclimated to the life I was living and so blind to what was happening with the money that when the actual money ran out, I just kept funding that life on credit cards. So about two years after inheriting the money, I was in deep trouble. I had not only gone through the entire amount, but 20 grand more on credit cards. So I couldn't even pay some of my essential bills. And my parents sensed that something wasn't right. They invited me to move home with them for a time, which was a very gracious thing. I'll always be thankful for the safety net they provided. But it was also a difficult, depressing time. You know, I had gone from 
really living this amazing life, everything I dreamed it, it could be, to living in my parents' basement in the small town where I grew up. And that, that was discouraging, to say the least. But it was through that experience that a friend from college reached out, shared his faith with me, and that set me on a path of exploring matters of faith and eventually led me to place my faith in Christ. And that would have been plenty to come out of that experience, but it also introduced me to the idea that God has a lot to say about money, and I got very interested in that. My wife, Jude, and I have been married 24 years now. We have three kids. They're 19, 17, and 14. My wife was on staff with Crew for nine years before we got married, so she's been very instrumental in my faith journey as well, just how solid she is in her faith, how she loves the Lord, she loves to give. So yeah, that's a little bit of background. And Matt, now I know your most recent book is all about raising kids. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about maybe the earliest memory you have related to money or generosity and how that impacted your life or got things started. Sure. I think the earliest memory I have of money was simply that from an early age, I don't know where I got it, but I just was a very hard worker. I really liked the idea of making money and I worked hard to make money. I had a big paper route. I shoveled snow. I worked in cornfields in the summertime. I did all I could to make money. I loved making money and I developed a very strong work ethic around that. And I wasn't a Christian, as I said, until I was in my late 20s. And so the idea of generosity, no, that wasn't on my radar screen. And even saving or investing some of that money at a young age, not really options. It was really about spending money. So I didn't really catch a vision for generosity until I became a follower of Christ. And the first church I went to in the Chicago area had a stewardship ministry. I'd never heard of such a thing. I thought that was interesting that they teach people what the Bible teaches about money. And I think they were desperate for volunteers. They let me start serving in the ministry when I really should have been (laughs) served by the ministry. But I loved that. And I was just a sponge. I would go to all these different events that they had to learn, just, you know, non-professional teachers, lay teachers, and also people on staff at the church that, that were really knowledgeable about this topic. And I just was a sponge. And you can't help. I mean, if you start engaging with the Bible and what it says about money, you can't help but run into that it teaches a lot about generosity. I mean, it really starts with you know the most common verse or well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And pretty quick in that journey of becoming a Christian, starting to learn about biblical money management, I couldn't help but see that generosity is a very significant part of being a Christ follower. I know there are stories out there of people that came to faith later in life And they went from giving nothing to giving a lot. That wasn't my story, honestly. I had to take baby steps and kind of get acclimated to it. It was a very foreign concept to me to give away money. And the standards taught in the Bible really rocked my world. So I grew over time. And when Jude and I, my wife and I got married, I was serving in stewardship ministry. And yet I was still not giving at least a tithe. In fact, she was in ministry. So she was making I think less than half of what I was making, maybe even a third of what I was making. And yet she was giving away a higher percentage of her income. She had more money in savings and her paid off car was two years newer than my paid off car. So (laughs) she taught me a lot about generosity and 
believe me, when we got married, that was one of the conditions that we would be giving at a biblical level. And so whatever shortfall I was experiencing up until that time quickly got solved. But it's been a journey for sure. Yeah, Matt, you mentioned taking baby steps toward generosity. And and I think that's just an ongoing process. There's not a point where you figured it all out necessarily. That was very much my story as well. Can you share some of those experiences that stretched you in generosity along the way? Definitely. I mean, when I was a new believer, I had $20,000 of credit card debt, and that felt like a barrier to giving. And yet I was challenged. You know, you read about Cain and Abel and one gift is acceptable and one is not acceptable. And it really seemed to be reflective of where a person's heart was. And so I knew the standard, you know, I wasn't fooling myself. I wasn't believing that, oh, you know, some people kind of camp on God loves a cheerful giver, so I'll give, you know, a very small amount, very cheerfully. I was challenged to give generously. And I can't remember percentages or amounts at that time. But I remember giving during that time of getting out of debt and growing in generosity, taking additional steps. So like I said, it was a step by step process, but I knew nothing. You know, I remember in the first Bible study I was in, somebody telling me to turn to the passage where Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh. And I had no idea, you know, where is where is that? New Testament, Old Testament, beginning of the book, end of the book. And so somebody helped me find that. And I remember reading, you know, about his thorn in his flesh that three times he pleaded with God to take it from him. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And man, when I read those verses, that was a life-changing night for me because I saw the purpose of the debt. I realized God wasn't just going to take it away instantly, but I saw that he was using the struggles I felt and the discouragement I felt of all that debt that I had to put me on my knees and to draw me closer to him. And I just found that I I really think it's true that you can't develop a relationship with Christ and not be drawn to living generously. And so all those steps along the way, like I said, I was just a sponge as I was learning more about God's word, as I was spending time in prayer, cultivating a relationship with Christ. I think my heart was just being molded and molded. And therefore, my heart was, my wallet was following and growing more and more in generosity. Are there any important concepts or thoughts, kind of frame shifts that happened along the way that really kind of launched you to a new level of generosity as you were going through some of these phases? Well, one of the real foundational teachings in the Bible for me, I mean, kind of the broader perspectives of stewardship was the parable of the talents. You know, again, all this was new to me. I feel like I've been in stewardship circles now long enough where some of it seems like, well, doesn't everybody know this? But no, I didn't know any of this. And so when I'm reading about the parable of the talents and I'm seeing that, oh, Jesus is using this wealthy landowner to convey the relationship of God and his people, that he entrusts us with his property. Everything we have belongs to him. And those that are faithful in managing God's resources, he strongly affirms. And I remember coming across in the middle of that where it says that that one day the master returned and took account of what the servants had done with what had been entrusted to them. I remember just stopping at that verse and lingering on that and saying, oh, right, God will one day take an account of what I did with the resources he blessed me with. And so that was very formative for me. As it pertains to generosity specifically, you know, part of it was obedience. Part of it was honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your produce. And I believe it's the New King James that talks about the first fruits, the first portion of your increase. 
it's become my conviction. You know, some people differ on this, but I feel like anything that comes into our lives, whether it's income through salary, whether it's a gift, whether it's an inheritance, I feel like any increase we are to honor the Lord with the first portion and giving back to him. But then other verses too, like the verse about where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When I first read that, I thought it should be the other way around. I thought it made more sense the other way around, that where our heart is, there our treasure will follow. And yet it says that where our treasure is, our heart will follow. And as I've reflected on that more over time, that's made more sense, of course, to me. And so that to me is a discipleship verse in generosity, that as I give toward God honoring causes, as I give to our church, as we give to missionaries, as we give to the causes that God's put on our hearts, we can't help but have our heart follow and draw closer to God. That's a verse that continues to encourage me. You, know, you see it through material things. You spy something fairly expensive. Your heart is drawn there. Your attention goes there. So I just love that idea that that I think it's so much more than that, too. I mean, it's an act of worship. It's an act of gratitude. It's so much. There's so much around the whole generosity conversation. But I love that verse in particular, that where your treasure is, that your heart will be also. And so I see that as a real discipleship sort of activity. So, Matt, you've got a book out recently here called Trusted. And before we dive into that, I'd love to hear how your career progressed from where we left off and kind of how your life as a Christian started to shape the way that you interacted with what you did for a living. That's a great question. So I worked in the business world for a time. I won't take you through the whole history here, but I was working in the business world. I was working for a market research company, AC Nielsen, and it was a great job. I was very thankful for that. Jude and I were newly married. It was a great blessing to be part of that organization. But there came a time, you know, I've been serving in stewardship ministry and just loving that. And there came a time when I would be walking into the building, walking into the office in the morning, and I felt like I was looking down on myself thinking, who is this guy and what is he doing? You know, again, it's a noble thing to provide for your family, but I just felt so passionate about helping people learn a biblical approach to money that I started dreaming about and I started sensing God directing me toward doing this work full time. And my adventurous wife, she was very supportive of that. So eventually we had enough money saved that I just quit a legitimate job and followed what I sensed was God's call to write and speak full time. And so I wrote some books with NAV Press at the time. And honestly, I felt like that didn't quite go as far as I thought it might. I felt like God led me to that. And yet it didn't feel sustainable. I was speaking at churches and you know, a friend of mine who's an entrepreneur said, Matt, you're a rent-a-speaker. You know, that's not really a sustainable model. <laughs> You know, eventually, it got to the point where we were open to other things and just sensing God may have something else for us. I mean, that was a great journey, a great experience. I think I worked full-time writing and speaking for seven years, and it was a great experience doing that. But I felt like it wasn't necessarily for the purpose that I thought it was for. I felt like it had the effect of strengthening our marriage. It took us through a journey of really having to trust in God more than ever because there wasn't as much money coming in as we really needed. And it finally opened us up to the idea of maybe God might be moving us somewhere else. And I thought we were living in Chicago, and I love Chicago, and I thought we'd be there all the days of our life. But eventually... There was a church, a large church in the Southwest that reached out about the possibility of being their stewardship director. Uh, they ended up not hiring that position. But then I got to know the folks at Sound Mind Investing. 
And I had heard about them, but I'd never really known exactly what they do. So I interviewed them for a blog I was doing, and I think that put me on their radar screen. And so ended up joining the staff of Soundmind Investing about 10 years ago. It's a great Christian organization that helps people with what I think is the most difficult part of money management, and that's investing, where we teach stewardship principles throughout all that we do. But through all of that, I still continue to write and speak my own on the side as well. So everything I do really is about teaching and helping other people walk this journey of biblical money management on the side. I write a blog, madaboutmoney.com, and I've written some books on the side, as you mentioned, the new one for parents and how to teach their kids about money. So I feel like that early vision, it didn't quite go as smoothly as I thought it might. And there were certain twists and turns in the road. But right now, I'm really grateful for both what I'm able to do every day, because it's all about teaching about biblical money management. And I'm thankful for the lessons God taught me along the way that it's not always going to be easy necessarily. There's going to be a huge faith element to that. So it's been, like I said, not the straight path journey I might have envisioned, but I'm thankful to be where we are right now. Yeah. So your new book, who did you write it for and what can the reader expect to read when they open it up? So it's with Focus on the Family and their publishing partner, Tyndale House. And it's called Trusted, Preparing Your Kids for a Lifetime of God-Honoring Money Management. And I'll tell you, in all the years I've been involved in stewardship ministry, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is that I feel like so many of the financial problems that we see around us are just perennial problems. Husbands and wives are arguing about money. That was true back when I got involved in stewardship ministry. It's true today. People are getting their value and their sense of self-worth from their possessions. It was true then. It's true today. People struggle with debt. People struggle with so many aspects of money. And I just really believe that if we're ever going to see large-scale change, we have to raise our kids knowing how to manage money from a biblical perspective. So I'm just super excited about having the opportunity to write this book. Focus is the perfect publishing partner because of their focus on the family. And they've been great to work with, as has Tyndale House. And I just, on the one hand, I see so much that's at stake here, because if we don't teach our kids about money, it isn't like they won't learn. They will learn, but the culture will be their teacher, which doesn't typically work out too well. And there's also just so much incredible potential here. As I mentioned, in my day job, I work with investing. And so one of the most powerful concepts in investing is compounding or exponential returns. But if you take that same power and apply it in all areas of money management, if you get a young kid that gets on fire for some of the great needs in the world and gets a heart of generosity and backs a heart of generosity with some generous habits and practices, how God could multiply that exponentially over his lifetime is just incredible to think about. And not just in the tangible giving that that young person does over their lifetime, but in how his heart will ripple out into all of his relationships and how his life will be infused with greater meaning and joy. You think about a young person who gets their relationship with God and money right at a young age and how that'll impact their future marriage. There's just, there's so much potential good that can come from a young person getting on the right track with money that I'm just endlessly excited about this particular topic. So why don't you break us into a little bit more of the detail about some of the topics that you cover in the book. What are some of the most important big picture concepts that hold true for how you teach kids about money and kids sure. of all ages? Yeah. Well, one of the things I've discovered with our own kids, I think I mentioned our kids are now 19, 17, and 14. They've been sort of a living laboratory with apologies to them, but I think that they haven't <laughs> been hurt too badly by the experiment. What I've discovered is that kids can learn more about money 
even complicated things like investing at a younger age than I think we tend to give them credit for. And so that's been exciting to see. And that's been a real revelation. And so it tells me we don't need to wait very long. We, we should, you know, the minute they've got money coming into their life, we should be doing some teaching about that. I use a framework in the book of encouraging parents to think of three different parenting roles that they play, the gatekeeper, the teacher, and the role model. And I think that's a really important kind of set, kind of framework for parents to be thinking about and consciously stepping into. So the gatekeeper is the one that's kind of setting the parameters, that's setting the expectations, setting the rules, having to give consequences sometimes. It's not the most pleasant part of parenting, as everybody who's a parent knows, but it's really, really important. In fact, there's a book that speaks to me on this that I've never even read, but the title alone speaks to me. It's called Be the Parent, and that's really what that's all about. We have to be the parent and step up and own that. Uh, the teacher, where we're consciously teaching them things about money. So from a young age, you know, really young kid, we can show them the coins and, oh, the dime is worth more, but it's smaller than the nickel. That's odd. And so we're teaching them some of those things. We're getting them hands on with money. And then there's the role model. And that's the most important one of all, because our kids are watching us more closely and listening to us more closely than we can ever imagine. So to be really intentional with those three roles is really helpful. And in the book, I apply that to all the things you can do with money, whether it's earning money, building a diligent work ethic, or planning the use of money, using a budget. You know, basically when a kid is using a three-slotted piggy bank of giving and saving and spending, that's a beginner's budget. That's allocating the resources that are coming into their life. Saving and investing and spending, all these things, there are times when we have to be the gatekeeper and there are times when we need to be teaching them and there are times when we need to just let them be hands-on and actually make some mistakes with money. That's another really important thing that I've discovered is true, is that we have to let kids do real things with real money and make some real mistakes where we don't swoop in and save the day because that's how they're going to learn best. Yeah, Matt, I think this is so important to be serving in those roles to the next generation, whether it's your own children or just children that you're around. But last time we connected, we kind of talked about, we all know the great wealth transfer is actively happening and will be accelerating in the next several years here. So this generation is going to be the inheritors of that wealth transfer and for them to have a strong foundation and understand how to effectively steward that wealth could actually change the entire world. And so that just gives this message a timeliness, but also an urgency to pass on to the next generation. Absolutely. John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived, apparently he once said, I never could have tithed on my first million dollars if I hadn't tithed on my first salary, which is a dollar fifty a week. And so a kid that just grows up where it's just an of course that we're going to honor God, we're going to give back to God a first portion of all that we receive, it's going to be way easier for them as they grow to give generously as they start making more money. So that's another reason why it's so important to get to kids early to get those habits established because you know, sometimes when I've spoken on college campuses, I'll tell these young people, I'll say, you know, look, you probably don't have access to a lot of money right now, but the habits you build now are really important because they'll be magnified for better or for worse when you're older and you have more. That's absolutely what happened in my life. As I mentioned, I developed a really strong work ethic as a young kid. 
but I also developed a, a habit of spending everything I made. And then when I found out about credit cards and I thought, buy all these things and only pay a little bit of it, that's great. And so I was all about that. It was the little habits I built at a young age that got magnified when I got more. And then when I got the inheritance, I really was not prepared for that. And so like you're saying, with this wealth transfer that's coming, it's so important for kids to grow up with the realization that God truly does own everything and that what I do with everything, even the most mundane things, the trip to the grocery store, getting the car fixed, they're all spiritual decisions because it's all God's money. And that's one of the lessons I learned from my mentor, Dick Towner. He used to say that a lot, that every financial decision is a spiritual decision because it all belongs to God. And that is so true. So I think for our kids to grow up, really one of the essential starting points is one of the more abstract points. And so it's kind of hard to say this is the first lesson, little Johnny, but we want to raise our kids with the identity of a steward or a manager, or as I like to say, a wise builder, because that's completely different than the identity of a consumer, which is what the culture teaches in countless noisy attention-getting ways every day. So if our kids have this mindset of stewardship, of being responsible for the care and the wise use of God's resources, and then as they get more, hopefully those really specific habits and practices that we teach and we foster and we point them back to Scripture and show them the scriptural basis for all of this, hopefully that is all in place when they do receive money, perhaps through an inheritance. Matt, what would you say are some of the most important skills that a child or really a teenager, I guess, should have by the time they're getting ready to leave the house and start to be in 100% control of everything going on around them? I'm laughing because there are so many. <laughs> I don't want to overwhelm people listening to this. But really, if you think about all the things you can do with money, hopefully they have a biblical framework for all of it. You know, so earning, you know, whatever you do, do it with all your heart is working for the Lord. Hopefully they see that this diligent work ethic isn't just about earning money. It's about honoring God. I mean, another verse I love from Jeremiah talks about seeking to be a blessing to our community seeking the good of our community, because in its good, we will receive ours. And so as a kid gets a lemonade stand going, it's not just about making money. There's great entrepreneurial skills being taught there, but it's also being a blessing to your community on a hot summer's day. So whether it's earning or then planning, the plans of the diligent lead to profit, or surely as haste leads to poverty. And so we want them to be intentional, being in the habit when they leave our house of Every bit of money they receive, they're being intentional. They're being proactive, not reactive with that money. They're giving a portion of it. They're saving and investing a portion of it. And then they're spending a portion wisely. As they go to generosity, you know, hopefully their minds and their hearts are filled with scripture and, and just, their, you know, just their love for Christ is what motivates their love for giving to God honoring causes. Think about saving, you know, in the house of the wise are stores, a choice of food and oil, but a foolish person devours all they have. Hopefully that, that verse is within them and they realize the wisdom of setting aside a portion of what they receive because that's just wise stewardship. And I think about investing, steady plotting brings prosperity, but hasty speculation brings poverty. So they have that long-term mindset. They go through something like we went through with the pandemic, where all of a sudden day trading was so in vogue and all this publicity was going to day traders who were live streaming their day trading. Hopefully they are just grounded in the principle that steady plotting brings prosperity. It's a long-term perspective that they're taking to their investing with their spending decisions. Really, it's Luke 16.10. Whoever is trustworthy with, with very little will also be trustworthy 
trustworthy with much. It's those little decisions that they realize they call to be trustworthy in these seemingly little financial decisions. There's so much, but there's something for them to learn and to be equipped to handle in all of those specific areas of money management. And hopefully they, they understand the biblical perspective of all that. Hopefully they've had lots of training, lots of hands-on experience under our roof with all these things. Hopefully they've made some mistakes, learned some hard lessons when, when the stakes are pretty low. And they're going out there with the mindset, with the identity, with the worldview of a steward or a manager or a wise builder, not a consumer, not taking their identity from their stuff, but from their relationship with Christ. And so that's a lot. And, you know, you don't get that overnight. You get that over time. And that's why it's really important to start early. Matt, I recently heard a quote. I don't know who to attribute the quote to, but the quote is, more is caught than taught. So as a role model for the parents or for the person who's modeling stewardship for children, why is it important to model generosity well? And what obstacles might you see if that isn't done well? When I was writing the book, I had breakfast one morning, a coffee one morning with some 20-something guys. And it was a great conversation. All of them Christians, all of them raised in Christian homes, all of them saw their parents giving to the church. They saw that. None of them understood why. And they never made that connection. And so, yes, it's hugely important to model it for our kids to see us giving. It's become more abstract now. I mean, at our church, even when, like before the pandemic, even though our church had electronic giving, we always put a check in the basket that came by because it just felt more tangible to us. And it felt like a real opportunity to give thanks to God, to acknowledge that he is our provider, to worship him. It felt good to do, to take that physical action. But ever since the pandemic, we've really been on line giving. And so kids don't see it as much. So we need to tell them, we need to let them know, you know, as we're on the app in the morning before we're going to church, invite them into the conversation, say, hey, take a look here. This is what we're doing. We're, we're giving to our church because we love our church and we love all that's going on at the church. And the Bible teaches us to be generous toward our church. And so it's important for us to tell them what we're doing because sometimes they're not seeing that. And then there are other things that they will see when we go to participate in certain ministry activities and things like that. They see that. It's a real joy for me to serve as a deacon at our church. And one of the things that I get to do is go to nursing homes on a fairly consistent basis and bring communion to people. And several times our kids have come with us. And that's been so great. The people we're serving would much rather see the kids than see me. It brings <laughs> joy to them. But yet the kids are involved in acts of service. And so that's them seeing us doing something service related, something beyond ourselves, beyond our comfort and our pleasure and all those sorts of things. And they're seeing the joy that we're getting from that. It's really important. But it's also really important for us to teach why, to teach them scripture, to give thanks regularly. I think one of the best things that we can do to model generosity is to express gratitude in front of our kids regularly and teach them to do that too. So when we're praying with them at night, when they're, we're saying goodnight to them, to not just be the one doing the prayer, but invite them to be praying about things that they're grateful for. So certainly every time we pray as a family, there's thanks being given for God's provision, for whatever it might be that we've been praying for lately, somebody's health or work situation or something like that. And so they're seeing that we're giving thanks and acknowledging God as our provider. So I think it's really important, like you're saying, to role model it for kids to see it. And now we have to be a little bit more intentional about it with online giving so that they can see it, but also really important for us to teach the why behind the action. 
So Matt, you mentioned a number of different skills, all of which are related, but also unique. And I was hoping you could give us a couple practical examples of ways that you can create the training ground to let your kids start to learn and experiment with some of these things from earning to planning, being generous, saving, investing, etc. What are some of the tangible strategies that you have found effective in kind of introducing those concepts in a hands-on way? Sure. So I'll just pick one. If you think about saving money. So when a kid is super young, I like the idea that they're using a piggy bank, you know, that you can buy them these days of the three slots, one for giving, one for saving, one for spending, or you could use three mason jars or three envelopes, but, but get them in the habit of the first portion is being allocated toward God's work in the world. The second portion is being set aside for future needs. And then the third portion is for spending. And then as they get a little bit older, so say five-ish or so, we can take them to a brick and mortar bank. Now, you and I know that a brick and mortar bank is paying almost nothing in interest these days. Online banks are the way to go. But I still like the idea of bringing a young kid to a brick and mortar bank because at first when a kid drops coins into a piggy bank, I've heard of some kids that get a little worried that if they can't see it, I've heard people give advice, oh, buy a translucent piggy bank so they can see that the money is still there. Well, it's really a big step forward to now go to a bank and hand over some money. There's a trust factor. Is my money just disappearing? Go there regularly. Have it be tangible, hands-on, and see. We used to have this where we used to live in, in Illinois. There was a sweet little bank in our town that had a rolling staircase you could put in front of the teller. And the kids would step up on the stairs and look at the teller face to face and hand over their coins. And the teller would put it in the machine that counted the coins and make the deposit and would hand back a slip of paper. They had a passbook too at the time where they could see how much money they have now. And they could see this new thing of interest, very little interest, but hey, there's something that has shown up there in your life that you didn't work for. That's interest. That's an important life lesson. And then as they get a little bit older, maybe eight, nine, 10. Now we can switch to an online bank. We can start to have conversations about the better interest that's paid because they don't have the expense of running brick and mortar banks all over the place. So it's more cost effective for them so they can pay a higher interest rate. So that would be wise stewardship to avail yourself of that. Still visit that regularly online, go and see what's happening, make sure it's accurate, make sure it's what you expected to see, see the interest coming in, that sort of thing. And then always grounded in scripture. As I said before, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish person devours all they have. You know, it's interesting that the Bible uses that word fool or foolish on both ends of the saving spectrum, right? There was the rich fool who uh, was building bigger barns and God said, you know, you fool this very night, your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you've stored up for yourself? And so we don't want to create hoarders, but we do want to create diligent savers. And we can talk with them about how do you strike the proper balance in that sort of thing. So that's one really practical example. I just want kids to be hands-on with money, doing real things with their money, making real decisions with the money so it's really real for them. And I always want it grounded in scripture. What about investing in particular also? You know, my oldest is seven. And what you said earlier stuck with me that kids probably can be taking on much more than we give them credit for. And I'd love to hear kind of Along the age spectrum, what should kids be learning about investing and how does that evolve as they get towards leaving the home? Right. I love the idea of a kid getting started with investing. And today, it's never been easier or less expensive. Today, 
at certain brokers, you can buy a fractional share of a stock or an exchange traded fund to form a type of mutual fund for a dollar and no commission. So the barrier used to be you'd have to buy a full share. And now it's just so easy to get started with investing. And so I love the idea of as parents, we have to open up a custodial account for the kids. They have to be the age of majority, which varies by state, but typically 18, 19, some states might be as old as 21 for it to be in their own name, but to start them off with a custodial account where it's their money, but you're the custodian, you're watching over what they're doing with that but get them started with it. So you can teach them things like, hey, there are these things called publicly traded companies. They're companies you're probably familiar with. You know, maybe you like Nike shoes. You can own a very, very small portion of Nike. That's incredible. And for a dollar and no commission, that's really incredible. So as we teach them to move beyond saving to investing, now we're thinking longer term, which is a really good thing. We can introduce them to the power of compounding or exponential returns and show them some illustrations of how money can grow over time. So for example, in the book, I talk about the idea that if a kid could have two to $3,000 in an investment account by age 16 to 18, and if they never added another penny to that money, but they just invested it aggressively, by the time they're 70, it could easily be worth over a million dollars. And now look, you know, sometimes we have to be careful. We're not here to create rich, you know, fools, certainly. But wealth is not a bad thing. And the fact is that so many people end their life, get get to their later years, and they are not equipped to provide for their family. The Bible teaches us that we have to provide for our family. The was the first Timothy five eight that teaches that he who does not provide for his relatives and especially his immediate family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And that counts for our later years too. I don't really think retirement is a biblical concept. But the reality is that whether for our health or the health of a spouse or a downsizing, most of us will end up not working for pay at some point. And as good stewards, we need to be prepared for that. So a young person could largely fund their later years, whatever you want to call that retirement or whatever you want to call that by the time they graduate high school. That's amazing. Now, the idea of saving or investing for retirement may not be very exciting to them, but if you can impress upon them the importance of doing that and then tell them, look, if you can get that much set aside and put it into a Roth IRA, which we, we could talk about, it'll be available tax-free as long as the government doesn't uh, change the laws. By the time they're in their later years, they will be well-equipped to be good stewards to provide for their families in their later years. So I think just get started. I don't think seven is too early. I mean, we're always the best judges of our kids, but if your child is in the game with giving, in the game with saving, in the game with making responsible spending decisions, I think it's time to open up conversations about investing and to start. And there's nothing like starting. I remember one of our kids, I think when he was 14, I remember he wanted to see how his investment account was looking. And so we went online to take a look and he saw these terms he'd never heard before, like cost basis. If I had gone on about cost basis over dinner one night, everybody would have fallen asleep. But <laughs> because he had real money invested, his money, and he saw this term on the website where his money was shown, he got interested. And so he learned that cost basis, that's what you pay for an investment initially. You know, it's hopefully grown over time, but it's the initial price you paid for the investment. That's cost basis. And there's just a whole new set of conversations you can have with your kids when you get them started with investing. I think there's so much to that. And by having something on the line, something at stake, it, it suddenly matters. It takes on new light. And I'm just thinking through all these scenarios where our parents were taking us to volunteer somewhere and they're showing us something, they're teaching us something. And I've kind of taken that for granted. And 
just talking with you, it's bringing a lot of memories up. And I remember Keelan teaching me about what an IRA was and how he got started in investing and he sold at the wrong time and he lost money. You know, we're like in high school and he's figuring this stuff out. And that just set a really good foundation. But I'm wondering for someone who's listening who might have young children or might plan to have children, if they're not currently on solid footing financially and they're not aware of what the Bible has to say about stewardship, where would you point them in terms of resources to start to get that information? There are so many good stewardship ministries out there that are in churches, Crown Financial Ministries and Good Sense and Compass Finances God's Way. Those are all great ministries. I love Randy Alcorn's work and his book, both Money, Possessions, and Eternity, which might not be the best place for someone who's really new to this to start, but the Treasure Principle would be a great place to turn. That's a great, easy, really fun, really motivational read. But, you know, start reading for one thing. I mean, the first book I ever read about biblical money management was a book by Ron Blue called Master Your Money. And I think there's a newer edition out than the one that I read. But again, these ministries are great. I mentioned Good Sense and Crown and Compass. Those are all really great. They've got websites. If they're not active in a church where they are, they've got some online resources that they can avail themselves of. So those are some great starting points. And then personal Bible study. I mean, if you're diving into the Word, the Bible says so much about money, you can't help but run into some of these verses. But for me, a great starting point was the parable of the talents, as we talked about earlier, where that's where you really get the foundation laid, that God owns everything in our possession, has been temporarily entrusted to our care to be managed for His purposes, according to His principles. And then you just start unpacking it from there, and you see that that God's Word teaches us on all of the specific aspects of money management from earning to investing to giving. And then there are the hard attitudes that are so relevant. The attitudes of contentment, which I really think comes about through gratitude. So start where you can. If you don't have a ministry at your church, go online to one of these ministries, pick up some books, Ron Blue, Larry Burkett, who's no longer living, but he wrote some great books about uh, biblical money management. He was one of the early influences in my own life. Howard Dayton, Chuck Bentley. There's just so many really good teachers out there. There's a lot of teachers that are teaching a not-so-great gospel, the prosperity gospel, so be aware of that. But if you go to any of those ministries I mentioned, you can't go wrong. Do any stories stand out from either raising your own kids or stories as you've done research for your books or in ministry of just effective strategies people have used to encourage generosity in their own families? Yeah. What I've experienced is that kids kids seem to catch a vision for generosity more quickly than adults has been my experience. And so just as it's a danger to swoop in and save the day if a kid runs through their entire allowance and now they want some more money for something else and it's important not to swoop in and save the day, the same is true with generosity. So I met several families in writing the book that told some really cool stories about their kids. I remember One, their child, their daughter was, I think, around six, and she'd been saving really diligently. I think she had like $30 saved up. She'd only been getting a dollar a week. She'd been giving off of that. So with what remained, she'd been saving that up for something important to her. Coworker of her father lost his house and all his possessions in a fire. And they held up. There was a potluck dinner being held for that family to raise money. And she, the six-year-old, brought all of that money to give to this man. It wasn't much money, but it was everything to her. And her parents could have swooped in and said, oh, honey, that's so sweet, but you've been so diligent in saving. Let's give a portion of it. 
They didn't do that. They let her give. And that was such a great thing for them to do, to not get in the way of that. I've heard other stories like that, too. You know, like I said, I think our kids develop a heart for it more quickly than we do. I mean, I'll tell one on myself here. It's convicting. But there was a time not that long ago, maybe five years ago or so, we were back in Chicago. And I was just with our boys, our two boys. My wife was off with our daughter somewhere. But we were walking down Michigan Avenue. And here I am. I've written books on biblical money management, right? (laughs) And we're walking down Michigan Avenue. And honestly, I feel like something in me over time and living in Chicago, I had gotten a little cynical about all the people that ask you for money. I just have to confess it. And so we're walking along and I see through the corner of my eye, a guy in a doorway holding a cup, asking for money, looked like he was clearly disabled. And Jonathan, our oldest, he said, dad, can we give him some money? And I said, I don't have any cash on me, which was true. And he said, well, let's go buy him something to eat. And I said, I don't see any restaurants around here. (laughs) I was being a barrier to his generosity. And then he said, well, let's get him a gift card. Well, there was a Starbucks there, but it was not like any Starbucks you've ever seen. It was a super high-end, like sort of a beta test store, very expensive, unique Starbucks. We walked in there. I said, could I buy a $10 gift card? I thought, okay, I'm finally being noble. I'm finally doing the right thing. She said, we don't sell it in such a small amount. (laughs) I said, oh. So I had to spend $20 on this gift card. So then I give it to Jonathan. He goes back to the guy, gives it to him. The guy was stunned, you know, overwhelmed, so happy. Jonathan was so happy in giving him this thing. And I learned a lesson and I was convicted. Somebody introduced me to a book, and I'm forgetting the title now, where it talked about how our disposition should be just to give. You know, we can say in a situation like a big city where you're getting hit up for money all the time, you can get a little cynical. You can say, oh, they're going to use it for drugs or alcohol, and maybe it's not good stewardship, and maybe it isn't. But this book conveyed the idea that does God judge us and explore our motives before he lavishly gives to us? And that's convicting for me. So I've learned some lessons just seeing how generous our kids are, but hopefully their generous spirit, I don't know. Somebody asked, how do you foster that in a kid? And I don't know what the magic is. I really don't. I think you pray for your kids. You do your best to try to model. You're going to make mistakes like my time there in Chicago with our boys. But God is good. And he overcame my resistance to enable Jonathan to experience the joy of generosity. Matt, when you told that story about the six-year-old girl giving all 30 of her dollars that she had diligently saved up, it just made me think of a childlike faith. She was so confident that money was going to continue coming in the future. And she knew that it was given to her. And so she freely passed it forward. And I'm sure her parents were delighted to see that. And I was just thinking, what if we all lived like that? What if we just really honestly believed that God's going to give us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. And even if we gave all of it away, he's still going to take care of us. And maybe that looks different in every case, but Just that childlike faith, I think, can be such a powerful connection point. And that story really brought that forth. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think it's so important when our kids feel compelled to give generously, we just need to not get in the way of that. I'll tell you another quick story. So another family that I interviewed for the book, they have two daughters. And when they were pretty young, I think five and seven, something like that, they really wanted a trampoline. And so the parents gave them some extra jobs to do around the house to save up for this trampoline. So they had been doing that diligently for some time. And then 
a missionary spoke at their church and they were so drawn into the, the amazing work that this missionary was involved in that they gave most, I don't think they gave all, but they gave most of the money they've been setting aside diligently toward his work. And then, now this doesn't always happen, or at least it doesn't happen maybe in our preferred timing, but something really remarkable happened then. So their aunt got in touch with them. Their aunt knew nothing about what the girls had done, that they'd given away most of the money. She knew that they'd been saving for this trampoline, didn't know they'd given away most of the money. So the aunt said, hey, it turns out that the store where I work has a trampoline on clearance. And with my employee discount, I can get you an even better deal. And it turned out to be such a good deal that they were able to buy the trampoline with the money that remained. You know, their dad said something like, that was just such a wonderful gift to have experienced God's goodness at such a young age, to be so affirmed in their generosity, to see, because I mean, that's what the Bible says. And people twist it and they turn giving into a give to get sort of thing, which is just an affront to God. I'm convinced, you know, the Bible says, who has ever given to God that he should repay him? God is the giver of everything. And yet there is a consistent message in scripture that some way, somehow there are blessings that God has in store for us in living the generous lives we were designed to live. And so for a kid to experience that at an early age, what an incredible gift. And so that's why it's so important for us not to get in the way and mess things up when they want to give at a level that we think might be overly generous. So Matt, what are some of the most common pitfalls that you have seen or that you have realized as you start to pull together the thoughts for the book that hinder parents' ability to teach about money and specifically about generosity? I think parents sometimes feel like they're not qualified to teach about any aspect of money, let alone generosity, because maybe they're convicted that they're not doing enough in their own lives or their finances are kind of a mess. And so, look, money is one of those things that none of us ever quite get right. We're always learning. We're always in process. And that's why the first portion of every chapter in the book speaks to parents because of the idea of being a role model and because of the idea that we all continually have more to learn in this area. So the first portion of every really practical chapter in the book, I'm speaking to the parents first of, hey, here's the biblical teaching. Here's how it can apply in our lives. And now here's how we can bring it to our kids. So I think that's one of the roadblocks is that parents feel ill-equipped to do this. And they're kind of quick to want to outsource it to somebody else, you know, a video teacher or their church or schools or something. But it's really important for parents to be the teachers because the school, even though schools are doing more and more teaching about personal finance, certainly secular schools aren't teaching it from a biblical perspective. And it's still kind of theoretical. You know, a teacher can teach about the concept of compounding or the importance of saving, but we can bring our kids to a bank and open up a savings account with them. So we're really the best people to teach our kids about money. And then I think sometimes we do too much for our kids. Somebody asked me recently about a kid that just spends everything. They won't set aside anything in savings, for example. And how do you change that? And I think, you know, it's probably different for different kids. And sometimes temperament really has an effect there. But I think in that case, I'm guessing parents might be doing too much for their kids. There's an author that I quote in the book that said just that. He said, he said, one of the most common mistakes, one of the biggest issues among good parents is doing too much for our kids. So great to grow them in responsibility of being responsible for more and more categories of spending, for example. Uh, one of the things that I talk about in the book, and I use some examples of some people that have done this, and we've done this in our household, but over time, so we might budget $25 a month for clothing for each of our kids. 
give them the money in an envelope, have them go to the store. It's their money. It's their responsibility to make it last. If they want to spend it all on one item, great. But now they don't have any money for clothing next month. Have them take more and more responsibility, do less and less for our kids, which is hard to do. You know, it's intuitive that we want to do things for our kids. But I think the more responsibility we give our kids, the better. And I think just one, and there's a lot of answers to the question, but one other answer I'll give you is that I think it's important for our kids to have some consequences. You know, again, it kind of goes back to the idea of swooping and saving the day. But there was a time when one of our kids was pretty young and swinging a big cardboard tube around the kitchen. And we had asked him to stop numerous times and he kept on doing it. And he knocked over a glass of water onto a computer that led to a very expensive repair that led to basically draining his savings account. And we had given a small allowance up to a certain age. It ended his allowance a year earlier. It still didn't even cover half of the repair but he had to have some skin in the game. He had to take responsibility for something that he had done. So really important for our kids to see that they need to own and take responsibility for things like that. Well, Matt, what are you excited about when you think about the future? <laughs> so many things. I love this topic. I want to go further with this topic of helping parents teach their kids about a biblical approach to money. I just feel like there are so many parents that would really benefit, the kids would really benefit. I want to exhaust myself in reaching more parents and encouraging them to start this conversation with their kids. There's one thing I would love to create a documentary someday. I think documentaries are great for drawing people into conversations and then to be able to equip them to take the next steps with it. One of the things I talk about in the book, there's a great documentary called The Social Dilemma, which I encourage parents to watch with their kids if their kids are about 11 or 12 or older, but it's about social media and really well done, really credible. And we saw our kids make some decisions that we had not restricted them on. They restricted themselves more after watching this. I'd love to create a documentary about money someday. And I also love the topic of teaching couples, especially engaged and newly married couples about money. So I just love the family dynamic. I love the idea of helping couples, love the idea of helping couples help their kids with money. I see endless opportunities to continue doing this work. And I would love to just devote the rest of my life to doing this. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm excited to see what comes of that. Well, as we get towards the end of the episode here, we did want to leave some time for our manager's minute, which is ironic because I think you've probably given us about a hundred so far, but we like to end every episode with one practical action our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and manage God's wealth wisely. So Matt, do you have a suggestion for our listeners today? I do. And if you don't mind, I'll frame it within this conversation of teaching our kids about money. I would strongly encourage parents to work with their kids to sponsor a kid through, there's several organizations that do this, Compassion International, World Vision, sponsor kid. We've sponsored several kids over the years. And I'll tell you, it's a geography lesson. One of the kids we sponsor lives in Burkina Faso. So we can look that up and find out where that is. But the kid that we sponsored, the first kid that we sponsored, a guy named Aziz, we gave him some extra money one year for his birthday. And he sent a picture back. It's great. You get to interact with these kids. I uh, sent a picture back with what he did with the money. It was a picture of him by his small house with the rice and soap he had bought for his family with this extra money, just exactly what an American kid would do with some extra money, right? <laughs> it helped make generosity personal for our kids because the next day, Jonathan, who was six, came into the kitchen. we had been talking about Aziz the night before. As any loving dad would, early in the morning, I hit him with a financial quiz, right? And I said, Jonathan, what are some things you can do with money? And he said, he was kind of yawning. He said, ah, 
you can spend it, you can save it, or you can give it to Aziz. And I thought, <laughs> that's perfect. I love that answer. Because now he had a face to attach the generosity that we were doing as a family. He understood the impact he, as part of our family, was having on a young kid half a world away from us. And I just think doing something tangible like that makes it really real for kids. Yeah, I love that example. I do think it becomes very real when it's connected to people because we do talk a lot about money on this show and we have during this episode, but it's really about people and God's heart is for people. So connecting that all together, if we have a whole generation of people who are really good at managing money, but missed the purpose, then what was it all for? So Matt, thank you so much for spending some time to just share your story and some of the lessons that you've learned. Just appreciate your heart for the next generation and your continual efforts towards passing along so much of what you've learned. Well, Cody and Keelan, it's been a pleasure talking with you guys. I really appreciate what you guys are doing and just love that we're all kind of in this activity together. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who's living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we'd love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers. Just a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we'd be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 82. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.